You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to episode 117 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you've joined us. Liberty, equality, fraternity. These words served as a rallying cry for the French revolutionaries who toppled the monarchy in 1789 and established the first French Republic. By the late 19th century, these words were institutionalized in the third French Republic and continue to serve as the national motto of France. Here in the United States, the words liberty and equality, however contested and unevenly applied, are essential ideas in our own national identity. But what about that third word in the triad, fraternity? What is fraternity? Is it synonymous with community? Communitarianism, civic humanism, love, democratic affection. What is the opposite of fraternity? Individualism, liberalism, selfishness, interestedness. In 1973, political scientist Wilson Carey McWilliams set out to answer these questions in a sprawling and magisterial 695-page tome titled The Idea of Fraternity in America. Not only does this book serve as a historical and theoretical treatment of the idea of fraternity in America, from the Puritans all the way up through the 1970s, but it also argued along the way that fraternity a relation of affection founded on shared values and goals must be reclaimed if 1970s Americans wanted to lift themselves out of the democratic malaise in which they found themselves sinking. Earlier this year, the University of Notre Dame Press released a 50th anniversary edition of McWilliams's book. It comes with an introduction by Pomona College political theorist Susan McWilliams Bart, Wilson Carey McWilliams' daughter. In this episode of The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, she talks about her father, his legacy, his motivation for writing this classic work of political theory, 
and the idea of fraternity in American history and why we still might need her father's book today. Susan will be with us in a moment, but first, let's take care of some business. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that, by the way, includes this bi-monthly or we're trying to make it weekly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, our new blog, The Arena, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, which is now taking a brief hiatus then head over to currentpub.com and click the red membership button. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. By the way, this is at Twitter or X. You can follow me at John Fia one, or you can follow current at current underscore pub one. We are also on Facebook. Instagram, and threads. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet. And consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Susan McWilliams Barnt is a professor of politics at Pomona College, where she has won the Whig Award for Excellence in Teaching three times. She is an elected member of the Executive Council of the American Political Science Association and the author of The American Road Trip and American Political Thought, published in 2018 by Lexington, and Traveling Back Toward a Global Political Theory published in 2014 by Oxford University Press. She is also the editor of A Political Companion to James Baldwin, published by the University of Kentucky Press in 2017, and a co-editor of several books, including The Best Kind of College, An Insider's Guide to America's Small Liberal Arts Colleges. That was co-edited with John Seary, and that was published with SUNY Press 2015, and A New History of American Political Thought, which is co-edited with Nicholas Bacola and Roosevelt Montas. That's forthcoming with Princeton University Press. 
McWilliams is the co-editor with Jeremy Bailey of the University of Oklahoma of the American Political Thought book series at the University Press of Kansas and a past editor of the peer-reviewed journal American Political Thought. For her work, McWilliams has received recognitions, including the Graves Award in the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, the Quarry Farm Fellowship from the Elmira College Center for Mark Twain Studies, and the James Lawton Ken Kesey Fellowship from the University of Oregon. Our discussion today is based on the introduction to her father's 1973 book, The Idea of Fraternity in America by Wilson Carey McWilliams. Our guest today is Susan McWilliams Barnt. She has just written an introduction for her father's book, The Idea of Fraternity in America, 50th anniversary, published originally in 1973. She is here to talk about that book, and I'm assuming she is the one who sort of pushed to get this thing back into print, and I'm glad that it is back in print so more people can be exposed to the ideas of Wilson Carey McWilliams. Anyway, Susan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, John. I'm really glad to be here and to have the chance to talk to you about my father's work. Yeah. I'm guessing most of my listeners, Susan, are not familiar with Wilson Carey McWilliams, your father. Uh, Who was he? Well, the shortest version is that he was a professor of political science and particularly American political thought. He spent most of his career at Rutgers University, but he was uh, much more than that, too. Um, He was a child of World War II and the Depression who grew up in California um, and into a family of people who were very um, eager public servants. And he spent time both in what became the New Left Movement at Berkeley and in the military before deciding to become a professor. So I think unlike what you think of when you think of professors, my father was somebody Um, whose perspective on politics came from both experience as a community organizer and activist, as somebody who was really involved in legislative politics and somebody who had a military background as well. And he was the son of another famous person on the left, the editor of The Nation, right? Yeah. His father, my grandfather, Kerry McWilliams, um, was a... California radical uh, who got his start writing books in starting in the 1930s, but mostly in the 1940s, most of which were about uh, racial egalitarianism. He wrote a book called Brothers Under the Skin, which was an argument for the essential equality of human beings across racial lines. He wrote a book called Factories in the Field and another called North from Mexico, which were about the treatment of migrant laborers, Mexican migrant laborers in America. He wrote a book called Prejudice, which was about prejudice against Japanese Americans during the internment. Um, So he really got his start as an advocate for racial egalitarianism and a student of California politics as a labor activist. And then he eventually became the editor of The Nation magazine. Um, So my father grew up under the specter of this 
moral titan of the American left. I would say my grandfather was from the perspective of egalitarians, especially on questions of race, right about everything all the time. And so my father was held to fairly exacting moral and political standards as a child, if only because he was expected to be a representative of his father's legacy. So I'm holding this book in my hand. I just looked at it here while you were speaking with the index, 695 pages. I mean, it's a tome, maybe not obviously to our listeners, but it's your father's magnum opus, right? This is what he's known for. The book comes out in 1973, you know, and he's writing about fraternity, you know? So I think I went back to prepare for this interview and I read a couple of the reviews of your father's book at the time. And, you know, the the political scientists seem to really like it. The historians were like, eh, you know, but one historian, I think said, you know, I really like this phrase said something to the effect of, we talk in the United States about that triad of the French Revolution, right? Liberty, equality, fraternity. We talk about liberty and equality a lot in the United States, but we don't talk about fraternity. You know, I love that kind of way it was phrased. I can't remember exactly how this historian phrased it. What leads your father to start thinking so deeply about this idea of fraternity? Obviously, he's starting this book well before 1973. You know, I'm guessing it has its seeds in the 60s. Talk a little bit about that, you know, the kind of historical context in which your father wrote and why and how he wanted to speak into the particular moment. Well, I mean, let me just say about that historian, I think that that observation about liberty, equality and fraternity really captures something about the spirit of my father's thinking, both about American politics and about politics in general, that often it's the things that you don't talk about that are most illuminating about the political order. My father saw it as his job to raise to the surface those things that often aren't given voice and those people who who often aren't given voice in American culture. Um, my father, like I said, you know, grew up in the Depression, came of age in California in the 1950s, and he was involved in the first um, student group that's a kind of precursor of the new left. It was called Slate. And it was a left-wing student activist group that was really intent on developing more meaningful student participation and governance at Berkeley. Um, the free speech movement at Berkeley comes out of the work that Slate had done a few years before. My dad also went to graduate school, not just undergrad at the University of California at Berkeley. So if you think about Berkeley in the 60s, my dad's there when Berkeley is becoming the Berkeley of the 60s that you know. And I think this book was really written or he started to write it as he started to see certain kinds of trends in American life come into being that sort of blossomed onto the scene a few years later, much more visibly. He was concerned about the ways in which young Americans felt disaffected from the political order as a whole. He was concerned about alienation. He was concerned about the ways in which all sorts of technological development, particularly like during and after World War II, were reshaping American life. I think the best way to read where my father started this book is to think of him as somebody who saw some of the underlying complaints that we know and recognize from the free speech movement, the Berkeley politics of the 60s, as he saw those starting to emerge. And he was, I think, in some ways trying to explain to 
those students and those leftists and himself, where it is that those kind of complaints came from and why they were there. By the way, that historian was Roland Bertoff, for what it's worth. We we may have one listener who's like, oh, my gosh, I can't (laughs) believe Bertoff said that. No. So let's get into the kind of nuts and bolts here, right? What does your father mean by this idea of fraternity? And as I read the book, you know, he's constantly kind of making these subtle differences, shading it in certain ways. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of not necessarily kind of this generic kind of community. At one point, he says it's it's different than solidarity. One of the reviews of the book in the 70s, uh, I think this was the intellectual historian Michael Kamen wondered why your father was not engaging with people like J.G.A. Pocock and Gordon Wood and, you know, this kind of civic humanism, you know, is that fraternity? And then, you know, he sees fraternity at the heart. I think he calls it, I can't remember the metaphor he uses, of an alternative tradition that Mm -hmm. he wants to uncover in the American past. Talk a little bit about that. What does he mean by fraternity? And what is this alternative tradition that your father was very much enamored with and wanted to recover. I'll take it back to like how I understand the book as a whole, which is that my father, not unlike many other thinkers, thought that America was dominated and has been dominated as far as you go back by a kind of liberal individualist ethos Mm -hmm. that's really put into law by the United States Constitution enshrined in law And that individualism and rights talk is not just the law of the land, but in some ways, the culture of the land as well. And so my father's like a lot of critics of liberalism dominance in American politics in saying, well, there's a lot about the structure of American politics that doesn't recognize or support people's need for relationships and people's need for community. But you're right. My father didn't write a book. Many other people have written books that say um, Americans long for community and the circumstances of American life make that hard. My father did, I think, choose the word fraternity carefully um, and for a couple of reasons. One, like I said, is that I think from the very beginning, he wanted to draw attention to the things that are present in politics, but that are relatively unspoken. Um, And that's why I like that liberty, equality, fraternity mention. The second thing is that I think my father thought that some of the words that we often use, like community or association, are themselves vague and not sufficiently capturing of what it is that people want when they want relationships. And I really think that my father saw fraternity as a way to capture the level of intimacy um, that's missing from the lives of so many Americans. That, you know, it might be true, as plenty of social scientists say today that Americans aren't as likely to join religious congregations as they used to be and aren't as likely to join bowling leagues as they used to be. But you can be in a church or in a bowling league and not really feel intimately connected to a person. And I think my father really wanted to bring out the ways in which um, Americans, like all people, don't just want broad communities in their lives. They want intimate relationships with other people. They want the sense of being really deeply tied at a level um, that's in some ways beyond, feels almost like it's a level beyond choice. Um, And and fraternity, I think for him captured that. I also want to say that I think for my father, 
liberal individualism, especially as it predominates in the United States, creates a kind of exaggerated internal crisis for men in particular. Um, and I do think that it's very intentional on his part that he chose a word that implies male relationship. That's not to say that kind of critiques he's making and the analysis he's making don't apply beyond the category of people who are men. But I think he wanted, in some ways, that anticipated later feminist writing, um, the ways in which the cult of liberal individualism really leaves American men in particular out in the cold, sometimes in ways they can articulate, but mostly in ways they can't. So it carries, if I'm hearing you right, and if I understand the argument in the book, it this fraternity, I don't know, has anyone else explored this concept in a kind of historical fashion? As a historian, I'm hearing things like, you know, this fits into the history of like emotions, mm-hmm. affection, love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are things you don't normally talk about when you talk about like political culture, democratic culture, right? And that's why I'm wondering, like, do, do political scientists talk about fraternity today? Um, I would say that most political scientists don't. Yeah. Um, there are some really important exceptions in the history of American political thought. And those are the people who my father was most interested in. Yeah. I think the place most recently where you'll see talk of love as the basis for politics or fraternity uh, as the basics for politics is an African-American political thought in particular. Yeah. Um, And one of the very cool things about my dad's book is that he's one of few political scientists in 1973 and political science was and is a very white and very male profession saying actually at the heart of American politics are things that have only really been explored in African-American political thought or have been disproportionately explored in African-American political thought. And as a result, um, have been marginalized in the culture large. So you're right, I guess, to go back to what you said before, my father agreed with plenty of people that liberal individualism is the dominant culture of American politics. But unlike many other people, he thought that there was an alternative tradition in American politics that spoke the language of fraternity and relationship and community and love and tried to explore those things within the context of um, the American political order. And part of dad's story about why that alternative tradition that gives us a language to talk about love and fraternity and community and our desire for connection has been obscured by liberal individualism is because it was often voiced by people who are in marginal positions. Yeah. Now I'm going to jump around a little bit here um, from the questions that I gave you, but everywhere you know it's kind of it's to me it was a frustrating book i really liked it i'm totally on board but it was frustrating in the sense that like no one met up to your fathers no one in the past (laughs) met up to your father's standards except the african-american community which i want to talk a little bit more about in detail about later and the puritans and then everybody in between was yeah but no (laughs) you know it's kind of you know i mean i'm thinking here of like you know, the Southern agrarians, Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, Twain, the progressive movement, Dewey, the New Deal. By the way, I love the part about the suburbs where he says, you know, like fraternity became neighborliness, this kind of shallow neighborliness. Right. So so is, is that right? Am I is that a correct read? I mean, obviously, I'm exaggerating here, but um, uh, 
Yeah, that that may be like a, a reflection of his temperament in general. Um, but I do think there's a couple things going on there. One of which is that I think that even among people who my father deeply admired for their insights into fraternity, somebody like Herman Melville, he saw Melville as somebody who who was shaped so much by American ways of talking and ways of thinking that in his search for fraternity and intimate connection, he sometimes overshot the mark, right? And I, one of the things that I think dad says almost paradoxically about American politics is that um, the liberal tradition doesn't just create people who long for fraternity and don't know how to express it, but like it creates people who think about community and relationship wrong, even when they want it. So even among the people who know that they want more community, speak that language of fraternity, they often tend to veer into the language of universal brotherhood, which isn't the language of true intimate relation, or they veer into romanticizing what my father called fraternities of battle, you know, the military or college fraternities or things like that. And so part of what I think he thought is that a lot of Americans have struggled to articulate and to provide visions of fraternity, but it's hard given the, like the overall context of American culture. I think the Puritans are an exception for him in part because they're here before liberal individualism really comes into play. And what's left of Puritanism in our culture is kind of the vestigial memory of what they set into motion before the, the constitutional framing in particular. Yeah, that's so good. What drew me to this book as I read it your father, I hope I'm not getting too personal with this, but your father is, I just so kind of appreciate his kind of authenticity. He's searching for something. I mean, he's, he's trying to go deeper than kind of most academics who would write a 695-page book would go. And I'm drawn to that. I find myself drawn to that. You know, this is not a political statement in any way, shape, or form. It's a human kind of statement, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, my father, I mean, it's true of all of us, right? Anybody who writes a book is somehow trying to work out something autobiographically in doing that. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. My father was a searcher. He had very, he was an anguished lover of the nation. Um, I think he always saw the amazing possibilities of American politics, but like so many of us ran up against all of the structural and intellectual and cultural obstacles to the realization of what we imagine American politics could be. And I think in a lot of ways, you could understand this book as his search for people who understood his own longing for um, the best in America um, and trying to find in some ways fraternity across the years. When I think about all of the people, and there are a lot of people who have told me this book is very important to them. It's not like with other books where they're like, this central argument really rationally changed my thinking. I think what they find in the book um, is the sense of company um, with other people who are running up against some of the really existential difficulties of living in the United States of America. Absolutely. That's yeah, that's that's so good. Let's get off the mountaintop for a second here and get back down into the nitty gritty. Almost every chapter begins with a quote from Alexi de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. I think there's a couple that don't. I remember one G.K. Chesterton, I think he starts with. I can't remember. What was it about Tocqueville that, you know, obviously 
you know, was Tocqueville the model of this? I mean, you know, he doesn't he doesn't really write about Tocqueville as much as he quotes him. Tell me about Tocqueville. Why Tocqueville? Well, I do think my father deeply admired Tocqueville. Tocqueville, when he came uh, to the United States from France uh, in the 1830s, wrote what I think is, I think is still the best book about American politics, in part because he sees American politics in its moments of formation. And he's trying to look at what he sees on the ground and draw more general conclusions. But Tocqueville is a great model for somebody who really appreciates um, the practical and theoretical possibilities of American politics. He is clear that this democracy thing, whatever it is, is going to just transform the world. And there are going to be a lot of great things about that. At the same time, Tocqueville is somebody who says, well, modern democracy, like any kind of form of government, is going to incline to certain kinds of excesses that could prove its own undoing, that could cause really negative effects. And so Tocqueville's whole project is to say, okay, what resources does America have within it or do modern democracies have within them to help mitigate against the worst tendencies of democracy? And I think my father understood his project as very similar. If liberalism is the unofficial law of the land in America, what tendencies are there or what resources are there within American culture to help keep liberal individualism from running amok and being taken to excess, right? Where are the sources of potential mitigation? So for him, he saw an alternative intellectual tradition um, that could help give people resources to resist the worst of liberal individualism, much in the same way that Tocqueville thought that civic associations and local newspapers could correct some of the excesses of mass modern democracy. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to the to the point you were bringing up before about the African American experience, because it seems as if you're you know you had mentioned that this most political scientists were not talking about this when your father wrote this book, but your father seems to really does seem to find hope and the best kind of bonds of fraternity as he defines it in the African-American experience. And, you know, I think to some extent, right, he's very enthusiastic or, or, you mm -hmm. know, extolling of the African-American church. I didn't expect that when I got to the end of the book, it made me think, you know, this guy was way ahead of his time on this kind of stuff. And at that moment, right. I mean, for a, a, a sort of, white male political scientist to end a book about fraternity that way, you know, kind of was quite powerful, I think. Can you elaborate a little on that? I would say, you know, credit where credit is due. He had been raised as the child of absolutely a visionary on racial politics in America. Yeah. Um, and I will also say that my father was acquainted with Dr. King. And so his engagement in, with the black church in this book isn't just armchair, you know, engagement. He was really very much tied into in the civil rights movement. And it was fond of telling stories about when he was at the army at Fort Benning, how they would desegregate counters uh, in ways that offended the locals. I think that for my father, African-American political thought in particular had a central insight that could be a corrective to the worst of American liberal individualism. 
what does liberalism, why do we like liberalism? Um, Americans tend to like liberalism. People tend to like liberalism because of the idea of freedom. The standard like liberal individualist story in American politics is that that freedom is achieved by the individual, um, that freedom is freedom from intrusion by government. One of the things that I think my father saw as central, a uh, central insight of African-American political thought is that freedom is in fact not something that you can achieve on your own. Freedom is not something that individuals can do just based on their passing emotions, but in fact, freedom requires discipline and organization. And so for him, I think the experience of a struggle during slavery, the struggle after slavery, and the struggle of the civil rights movement, all of which are reflected in so many um, terrific ways in African-American culture and politics and practice, was in some ways to suggest a kind of politics that values freedom just as much, if not more than any, you know, mainstream or white American story about it, but is really rooted in the recognition that freedom is always realized through relationships with other people. Yeah. And your father is coming at these questions. Now, again, for those of my listeners who of this podcast who are not familiar that much with political terminology and jargon, right? We keep referring to this liberalism, right? This individualism. And some might get the perception, maybe, you know, a, a certain kind of uninformed thinking might get the impression that your father some even academics, maybe based on the way your father's legacy is being thrown around today, might get the impression that your father was a conservative of some type or, a, you know, he wasn't liberal. Right. right, right. But, but he's coming at these questions at I mean, is it fair to call him a man of the left? Uh, yeah, I think in his more unguarded moments would go so far as to call himself something like a social Democrat. Yeah. I think he also thought of himself as a radical, not in the sense of like being a revolutionary, but in the classic sense of the term that radicals want to get to the root of things. Mm -hmm. um, and he thought only by getting to the root of American intellectual and cultural life, could you really have any traction in trying to confront what ails us in American politics? So yes, it's important to say that for my dad, liberalism isn't like what Fox News means by yeah. liberalism. It doesn't mean left. It means the focus on individual rights that is a feature of both the American right and left. Yeah. Um, my father was very sympathetic to the argument that both the Democratic and Republican parties were in different ways liberal parties. And maybe it's just a difference in emphasis on where the liberalism lands. Yeah. I do it, you know, an, an experiment with my students sometime where I say, think about the political position that you think is most important. Now, try to find a way to talk about that without using the word right anywhere. And it's very hard for my students to do. And my father would say, listen, this is the clearest evidence that Americans have trouble thinking outside of liberal individualist politics, that we frame everything in terms of inalienable rights. Um, that's not to say that, you know, that concept of rights isn't important or doesn't exist or doesn't like... Um, have a function, but my father would say, we don't really have other kinds of ways to express what we think to be right um, and to speak to each other publicly. And for him, that's a kind of symptom of a political culture that's missing language that it probably needs. Yeah. 
Yeah, a little bit of politics 101 in there for my listeners. Yes. I just wanted to make sure that they uh, they understood exactly what we were meaning when we were talking about uh, liberalism. I didn't prep you for this question, but but one thing I when I read reviews of your father's book, I can't remember who it was, but somebody somebody mentioned that he doesn't talk much about socialism in the book. I mean, there's not a whole you would think someone like that would would maybe kind of even even if it's to debunk socialism as a kind of shallow, shallow form of community or whatever, um, he doesn't he doesn't mention that much. I think this goes back to the idea that he was himself searching for a language in American politics that was unspoken and that wasn't particularly loaded. Yeah. Um, I think my father really saw himself as somebody who was sympathetic to the concerns of Americans across the political mm-hmm. spectrum. He was friends with some of the most conservative political thinkers in the country's history, you know, in, in the 20th century. He was also close friends with some of the most liberal uh, thinkers from the same, sort of left-wing thinkers from the same time. And my suspicion is that using words like socialism um, would box him in in ways that he didn't want to be boxed in. We all know the ways in which in American politics, if you label yourself as this or that, people will immediately make judgments about you and they will immediately write you off or be too willing to believe you. And I think it was pretty consistent across the whole of my father's career, not just in this book, that he really tried to avoid being pigeonholed because I think he thought, not incorrectly, that the second you were pigeonholed by a political term, you would lose the capacity to speak to your fellow citizens. That's great. I totally agree. That's wonderful. So it's the 50th anniversary of this book. I'm assuming, like I said in the intro, you were the one who was the catalyst to get this in print, although you've mentioned a lot of people, maybe in your introduction, or maybe you just said it today, that you know a lot of people wanted to see this book back into print. That's one reason why, uh, probably the, the most important reason, sort of pragmatically, why back in print. But I'm just wondering, as you think about the reissue of this book, you know, does it also speak to our current moment 50 years later? You know, how does this call for fraternity? Is it still needed? I mean, does this alternative tradition still need uncovering in American political culture today? Well, I will say I wouldn't have gotten you know, a bunch of people to put this reissue together as a vanity project if I didn't really believe that this book is really important for the contemporary political moment. And in a funny way, I think what was powerful about this book in 1973 is even more powerful about it now, because 50 years later, well, there are moments in this book where I think you can see it as a product of the 60s. There are moments where Overall, the book feels so of the contemporary moment, just in talking about Americans' distrust of each other, Americans' distrust of government. The Surgeon General in the United States this year proclaimed an epidemic of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton's been writing about the epidemic of loneliness. It's almost a foregone conclusion among sociologists that there's an epidemic of loneliness. My father was writing about that 50 years ago. And so one of the things that I think is really great about reading the book in the present moment is that because my father saw all those things 50 years ago, I think there are certain ways to read it now that are comforting to realize that as peculiar as certain political events of the last few years seem, 
They're not entirely without precedent. Um, and I'm somebody who studied the history of political thought say, yeah, a lot of what the reason we study what we study is to feel a little less alone in history and to realize that there's precedent for what seems unprecedented. But I think now, maybe even more than in 1973, some of the things that my father was worried about are still evident in American politics. One of the things he's concerned about in 1973 is what people are calling toxic masculinity today. Men who feel they need to perform certain in certain kinds of ways to have public or social standing. Um, that he saw that 50 years ago is very instructive. The surveys now that suggest Americans are lonelier than ever, more disconnected from ever, more hostile to government, less likely to know their neighbors, more likely to have to move multiple times. All of these things are you know, clear indicators as much as any kind of survey data can be an indicator um, of what my father thought really created emotional uh, uh, individual problems for each of us. I do think in the end, and I think maybe this speaks to your sense of this as a very human book, my father was both in his like personal life and in his writing, wanted people to feel less alone in the world. And I think he was very well attuned to the way that American politics with its big size and scope and all the technology and all the bureaucracy and all the distant powers make so many of us feel lonely so much of the time and to feel like that's maybe something about us. I think part of what my father wanted people to know is that the problem isn't you. Um, the problem is sewn into um, the constitutional framing. And so first of all, like, Think about the system, not just about yourself, but also realize that there are a bunch of other people out there for you to discover who felt what you felt, who feel what you feel. My father's one of his favorite authors who he talks about in this book was James Baldwin. Um, and James Baldwin has a line that I think is very reminiscent of the spirit of my father's work, which is when Baldwin says, I felt so angry and so alone for most of my life. And then I started to read and I realized that I wasn't as alone as I thought. And I think that in his own way, my father was searching through this book for his own intellectual comrades. And that I think now he can be there for people 50 years later um, as a kind of source of comfort and insight um, into the things that are, for some people, not just um, experienced as sort of politics on the level of policy, but as deeply personal um, problems and struggles yeah. in America. I wish I had met your father and had a chance to have a conversation with him, but this is just as good. I'm really enjoying listening to you talk about him. What has it been like sort of, you know, I've, I've searched around on the internet a little bit, seen that you've done some interviews here and there. What's it been like kind of talking about your dad in kind of a professional, you know, professional setting as you, as you promote this book and try to, you know, advance his ideas. Has that been weird? Uh, no, it's great. Everything about it is great. My father died almost 20 years ago. I so loved him when he was alive and he was one of the few people and you talked to you, you know, you know, academics, there's yeah. plenty of academics whose, whose published work is very different from them as a person. And my father really was somebody whose work was very reflective of who he was as a person. So being able to talk to him about him professionally is just like being able to spend time with him in general. Um, and I think it's just a real gift to be able to spend time with him in any capacity so many years after 
no longer around. Well, Susan McWilliams Barnt, she is a political scientist and a scholar, a fine scholar in her own right. But today she has been here talking about the idea of fraternity in America, written in 1973 by her father, Wilson Carey McWilliams. It is out now with the University of Notre Dame Press. Susan has the introduction uh, to this uh, to this book. And thanks so much. We're, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. So thanks for taking some time before your weekend to talk about your dad and this book and fraternity and things that, uh, you know, even go beyond that kind of stuff. So appreciate it. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. It's just an honor to be on the podcast. you enjoyed this interview with Susan McWilliams Barnt. We do not normally have political scientists on the show, but since this was a 50th anniversary book of a book published in, you know, 1973 that really spoke to the kind of crisis of liberalism, the crisis of the 70s, an attack on the kind of individualism that was so prevalent at that time. I thought it would be a nice book that sort of bridged that gap between, you know, what was going on in America 50 years ago and what was going on in America today. You know, this kind of continuity that we see here with some of this stuff. So, I mean, it's a big book. It's a long book. It's sometimes a frustrating book. It's a rambling book. But the careful reader, I think, will be rewarded by this book. Because McWilliams offers a vision, an alternative vision of American life that I find to be very, very compelling. And it's a vision that actually we're talking about this in the interview that ends up with the kind of love, affection, fraternity, if you will, that you see uh, within African-American culture. And even back in the 70s, McWilliams finds African-American life and culture as one of the few places where real fraternity actually exists in the United States. Uh, so again, we could, you know, maybe as you listen to this, you could wonder like, is that uh, fraternity still there in the African-American community today? I don't know. It's interesting that McWilliams was talking about this uh, 50 years ago. So thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this interview with Susan McWilliams Bart. The book is available everywhere. The idea of fraternity in America published by Notre Dame University Press, came out in 2023 in paperback. Go out there and get a copy of it. Hope you're enjoying these podcasts. Our goal was to have a weekly podcast, you know, every week from, you know, the beginning of the summer to the fall. You know, we rely heavily on your donations. You know, we have to pay to put these things out, to get them edited properly and so forth. Um, That's where Casey Lehman comes in down there in Nashville. and. As a result, we just couldn't make it. We couldn't make it because we didn't get the support that we needed. 
Nevertheless, we're going to be following this up with a few more weekly episodes so you can check us out next week. And then I think the week after that and the week after that, and then we'll just see where we're at. But again, head over to currentpub.com, click that red membership button. We'd love to have your support. Election season is coming up. That's right in our wheelhouse over there at currentpub.com. We just finished with a great series of articles on higher education. So uh, Eric Miller, the editor of the features section at Current Pub, is doing some great work. And of course, we still have the two blogs over there, the arena and my own blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And again, let's let's add a, a weekly podcast to the mix. I'm up for it. If you're up for it, tell your friends, give us a review, spread the word about this podcast. You know, I think we're delivering some good content. Let's make sure we can get it into as many hands as possible. Again, thanks for listening and may your way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman. She's out of Nashville. And I, John Fia, am your host. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.